Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation Star Trek podcast by two guys who are a little bit embarrassed to have a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. Ben, I'm coming at you live from a plastic case of emotion. <laughs> I've had a contractor at my house for the last week, and uh, needless to say, the studio is in a shambles once again. <laughs> my studio is looking different. Oh, yeah? You finally get that snap-on tools calendar on the wall? <laughs> yeah. Nice. I uh, Well, you know, we we had our big Max Fun Drive quite a while ago, but it took us a long time to sort out a bank account, so none of the generous support that we garnered had landed in either of our pockets until, like, this week. Uh, and I finally made some investments in improving my... Uh, recording space. I got some some sound baffles, and I got a you know a, like a inexpensive fake Persian rug off of Amazon to put on the floor so that you can't hear my chair wheeling around all the time. See, I was gonna say you did sound more baffled, <laughs> and <laughs> I should also say a skosh more Persian. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna do a Persian accent if that's what you're trying to goad out of me, Adam. Not at all. That was not my intention. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I I imagine that the difference for the home listener will be very fractional. But one thing I find myself doing a lot of when I edit our pod is hearing my chair like roll across the hardwood floor and then have to like <laughs> pot that down. Yeah. And, uh, and so like, I th- I feel like it mostly comes across clean enough, but... Listen, I'm rolling back and forth right now. Hey, can that barely hear anything. Doesn't sound like anything. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing that I edit most out of our show, and I should say that, like, for as much work as we put in on the edits, I think most of that work comes from finding and selecting fun drops. Yeah, like actual content that comes out of the show, I think, is very slight, and I don't think. I think initially I was in, I was interested in removing all the ums and the uhs and the <laughs> repetitious way we sometimes circularly uh, begin a sentence. But I think the show's gotten looser lately, and I don't say that as a bad thing. I just mean that I think we can preserve the quality that we've had from the start while also keeping it honest between yeah. us and the viewer. Well, yeah, and I think that... Um you know, from show to show, you know, we have stronger outings and weaker outings. And I like to try to bring a weak outing up to a certain standard if I feel like that's yeah. what I I happen to be sitting there editing. And part of the way to do that is just to cut out all the, like, foggily searching for a thought to <laughs> convey. <laughs> Well, I I can't wait to see what you do with this open, Ben. (laughs) I told you I didn't have much, Adam. (laughs) All right. Well, if we don't have much, why don't we take it to a place that has plenty, Ben? Yeah, it's Season 7, Episode 13, Star Trek Insurrection. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, if only they had cast Paul Sorvino in Star Trek Insurrection. (laughs) Paul Sorvino with major film cred and gravitas, you know? Yeah. His character of Nikolai Ryshenko in this episode could be anyone. But because it's Paul Sorvino, I think it makes it a little better. Mm Mm-hmm. Did I ever tell you about the time that I saw Paul Sorvino brand pasta sauce in a Costco a couple years ago? No. Yeah. The Paul Sorvino Foods Company was for a time a thing. Were they giving out samples or anything? They weren't. It was just like a four pack in, you know, a rectangular Costco box, you know, like (laughs) everything else comes in. I really wish there was a sample. I was actually out of town. Like, this was a drop into a Costco while I was away from home, and I wasn't going to, like, 
buy pasta sauce and then pack it in my <laughs> luggage to bring home. So I didn't actually buy it. And I yeah. can't tell you how good or bad it might be, but I do have regrets not having ever had his pasta sauce. It's got to be great, right? I, uh, for some reason, the grocery stores near my place that I live now almost never seem to have gimmick products in them. But I just... Oh, oh Paul Sorvino is making Paul Sorvino face at you at the idea that, that his product would be a gimmick, my friend. <laughs> well, I'm just saying I I will reflexively buy shit like that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't like he, Spider-Man, but I'll get a Spider-Man Pop-Tart if <laughs> that is a temporary item. I don't even like Pop-Tarts. Paul Sorvino has a reputation, deserved or not, of being like the world's foremost Italian-American man. (laughs) I don't think he'd put his name on a shitty pasta sauce. Unless it was just the, that classic Sorvino cash grab. (laughs) (laughs) Such a classic. Uh, Well, Paul Sorvino is in trouble at the beginning of this episode. He has issued a distress call. And uh, he he's playing Nikolai Rosenko, Worf's adoptive brother, and uh, he's he's got the job of cultural observer on a kind of quasi Mentakan type of planet. Yeah, yeah, it's a little diet Mentakan. Have we heard of Nikolai's existence before now, Ben? I was trying to think about that, and I don't know the answer to your question. <laughs> At the rate that we're consuming this show, I would have assumed that we would have remembered any reference to that. But, um, yeah, I can't. I, I think this is the first time that he's been referred to. Right. And there's a lot of weirdness about it. Like, he doesn't ever ask after Alexander. Like, we've never heard, like, of any consideration being given to an uncle character in Alexander's life. You know, you have to you have to assume that an academic has a more stable lifestyle than the chief tactical officer of a ship that gets in battles all the time. <laughs> it might be a better, you know, full-time caregiver to a child, but who knows? You bring up a great point there in that description, which is like the greatest distance that the episode goes in making Nikolai important is the title of his character as stepbrother to Worf. It does no other lifting as far as, I mean, they're estranged and that, that estrangement is the foundation for their relationship. But you're right. Nikolai never asks Worf a personal question. They never mutually talk about their parents, you know, things that bond them. The only things that bond them in this episode is how they fight all the time. Yeah, they 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 talk about their their interpersonal conflict, but that's yeah. about as far as it goes. Well, so they pull up to this planet that Nikolai is supposed to be on, Borel Two, and they scan the duck blind that he's supposed to be hanging around in, and he's not there. And the the deal with this planet is that the atmosphere is about to like boil off into space, and it's kind of a precipitous. It's like a catastrophic atmosphere failure that there's not really anything they can do about. So it's a little worrisome that they can't find him where he's supposed to be. But they scan around and they find some caves that have a deflector field erected. They can't be native to the planet. The Borallans don't have anything close to that level of technology. So the assumption is that he's there and the, and, and Captain Picard's like, Worf! We need you in surgery. Go get your face changed and beam down to the planet. <laughs> this this teases a bit of excitement for me. I'm like, oh, awesome. They're going to like de-loaf Worf. The, <laughs> this, the plastic surgery they put Worf through is basically a Carl Weathers eriser. <laughs> <laughs> like with a hoodie and a mustache. Like, because... <laughs> That's all they bother to do. It's inconclusive as to whether or not he has loaf under the hood. Yeah. But he but what he does have is a full mustache. And they changed the bridge of his nose a bit, right? He's got a little bit of a of a putty on the nose. He is he's got the like the bridge of his nose is clearly molded off those little ear goobers that they have in uh, Wrath of Khan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
It just looks like a thumbprint in ground beef. While he's in surgery, he's talking to Dr. Crusher, and he sort of like wharf yelps his brother. He's brilliant, persuasive, natural leader. Shitty brother. Sounds intriguing. I look forward to meeting him. Yeah, as if he's reading off camera his resume. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He also knows PowerPoint. (laughs) Likes to hike on weekends. Great at building teams and developing talent across the enterprise. Perhaps he works too hard. (laughs) (laughs) This is a fairly extended pre-cold open because on the planet... Worf beams down, and from behind a boulder appears Nikolai in full Boralin drag. I would know that voice anywhere. Worf, is it really you? Yeah, it is full Boralin drag, and more drag than maybe you even meant to say, Adam, because almost every male in this society wears, like, a full hijab-level head covering, (laughs) and the women do not, and... Paul Sorvino is like one of the only one males that we see not with his head totally covered. And I sort of wondered about that. (laughs) I love that so much. I can just see Paul Sorvino in the trailer. Like the the costume designer hands him like the balaclava that everyone else is wearing. (laughs) Paul Sorvino's like, are you fucking kidding me? I was in Goodfellas. Like (laughs) no one's covering up this head of thick Italian hair. Don't make a jerk out of me. Just don't do it. Well, yeah, like it changes Worf's face so much. Like the shape of Worf's face is like, you're like, holy shit, Michael Dorn looks super different in this this episode. And I wonder if they put him in the hood and they were like, well, it doesn't really look like Paul Sorvino anymore. And we kind (laughs) of want to capitalize off the fact that we got Paul fucking Sorvino. Yeah, I mean, this isn't Ron Canada we're talking about here. Ron Canada, who is a great and brilliant actor in his own right. This yeah. is... I'm really excited that we're going to be able to pull out the Ron Canada drop one more time. <laughs> ben, as I was watching Michael Dorn walk around in the hood... Let's take a walk through the deepest part of the hood. I don't think if someone tested me, and I was taking that test very seriously, <laughs> if there was a... If there was 10 8x10s of Carl Weathers in the hood and Michael Dorn in the hood, if I could pick out who was who. And I love Carl Weathers, and I love him in all movies. Like, I know exactly what he looks like. It's a hard test. I think that maybe the thing throwing you off is the Halloween store-level mustache they put him in. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bad mustache. It's not a great stash. <laughs> well, the deal with the Burallans is that Paul Sorvino saw their atmosphere problem coming, being a person with access to far greater technology than they had. And so this one village that he's been observing, he managed to convince them all to come into these caves and hide. And then he erected a force field around the caves so that the atmosphere problems would not present an issue. And he has, like, roped Worf into his fiction Basically, from the second Worf shows up, he's like, hey, this is my brother. He's going to help us. Like, we're going to go find some supplies. It's going to be great. This is my brother Worf. He's come to help us. We're going to go up to the surface where ordinarily people would be killed. But my brother has a magic power that will keep us safe. Bye. This is one of the great cut twos, too, is like we cut from the cave to theme song to a McLaughlin group. Issue one. Where Paul Sorvino is like wearing blue drapes and he doesn't have the (laughs) nose bridge putty anymore. Yeah. I was fully expecting everyone in the room. Like the McLaughlin group is Riker, Troy, Beverly, and Picard, I think. And And, I was fully expecting... And Worf. Like someone had to ask him about that nose, right? (laughs) Like I wanted to know everything about it. Like did he make it himself? Did he like... Did he sleep in it? (laughs) Did he, they, did he glue it on every morning after a shower? Like, how do you rock that nose? They go in and out of reconstructive surgery so quickly in this episode. <laughs> this would be a two-hour episode if you saw all the surgery scenes. Yeah. Yeah, they take, like, okay, I'm going to take, like, a two-day break from having no nose loaf and then go right back <laughs> into it. 
<laughs> and like think about what that's got to mean for Worf. Like they're taking a ton yeah. of loaf off the top, <laughs> and then what do they do with it? Do they like put it on ice and stick it in yeah. the freezer. <laughs> Is it like floating in barbicide next to a bio bed? Yeah. Well, Picard is ripshit with with Mr. Sorvino because what he has done is a fairly brazen violation of the Prime Directive. And Sorvino's like, dude, these people don't have to die. And the Prime Directive is about like letting people live their lives, not it's not about making active decisions to kill them. And Beverly's like, Yeah, like because we know what's going on here. Doesn't that give us culpability in not saving them? Mm. Which, uh, you know, it may be a bit of sophistry, but I fucking kind of agree, you know? Yeah, I mean, especially if there is a method of breaking the Prime Directive practically that does not break it in spirit. Right, the letter of the Prime Directive law. Yeah, and I like this because Beverly has has taken this position before, and I like that that's like a a piece of character continuity here. Yeah, it seems in line with uh, anyone who would have a medical background and a do-no-harm sort of vibe to them. That's true. That's a good she point. She sees an opportunity to save. She's ready to save. And so, like, what Paul Sorvino is advocating for is, like, let's get them up on this ship— we can transport them to another class M planet, drop them down on it, and like they can continue their lives. And Picard is pretty much just like, fuck that. We are sworn to uphold the principle of the Prime Directive. And until that is changed, there is no further course of action that we can take. Is that understood? You already fucked up big time by putting him in the cave in the first place. It's a good thing they're all going to buy the farm very shortly. And Sorvino's like, well, at least can I go back down and get my notebook? I've got to have my notebook. In, like, such a transparent, I'm going to go down there and fuck with the situation (laughs) proposal. Like, come on, Paul Sorvino. You can't expect to float that one past pipes. Yeah, but, like, season two, they would have... They would have just gone with that as how oh, yeah. as how the as how the hijinks begin, right? <laughs> Season two, Picard would have authorized that before he finished the sentence. <laughs> Fuck yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, but Picard shuts him down in a logical captain decision. I'm afraid that won't be possible. And there's a pretty somber scene on the bridge as they watch and. Picard tries to kind of like teachable moment everybody about this entire sentient species dying as the atmosphere rots off of their planet. This is one of those times when we must face the ramifications of the Prime Directive. Captain Picard. I thought I already gave you a teachable moment when it comes to genocide. (laughs) It appears you have taken the thesis to my college course and have used it for your own classes. Let me serve as an example of the horrors that it could lead to. I was once a respectable dowd, and now I fabricate sex dolls. It's terribly embarrassing. You have a very successful career as a Starfleet <laughs> captain, Picard. I wouldn't want anything bad to happen to your Starfleet career, Captain. <laughs> it's a nice career. Be a shame if anything <laughs> killed it. <laughs> to be quite honest, genocide does not look good on a resume. <laughs> Paul Sorvino knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> of course, <laughs> he's given people offers they can't refuse. <laughs> Yeah, poor Picard, like, gets up out of the chair. Captain Picard, I can cut garlic so thin. (laughs) I can cut it impossibly thin. Sure that it melts in the pan. It's very good precious. I can slide a razor blade between the molecules in garlic. (laughs) That's the level of control I have. Get your shine backs, Picard. Picard, in the way that a dad probably teaches a small child about death by flushing the goldfish down the toilet, <laughs> like, steps steps stage left at, at the bridge horseshoe and is like, look, gang, 
death is really hard, and we just witnessed the genocide of billions of people. Pretty rocky day, huh? Anyway, I'm going to go into my ready room. <laughs> and Paul Sorvino's at the top of the horseshoe like, there's nothing to learn from this. You're an idiot. We had a chance to save these people, and now they're all dead. Like, there's nothing to even, like, observe here that is a teachable moment. Yeah, it's the push the piece of pie away from yourself. You're, you've lost your appetite kind of moment right, for Paul Sorvino. Right. And he walks out and... Uh, it not- takes a lot for Paul Sorvino to lose his appetite, Ben. Yeah. TBH. TBH. Not long after he walks out, they get some uh, some pretty heavy interference on the on the screen. The tracking on the view screen is a little off. They got to turn that little wheel under the VCR. <laughs> yeah, data data gets down on the under the console there, <laughs> rolls the little wheel, and uh, fixes it. And when the planet is fully and truly dead, they realize that there are some weird power problems on the entrepreneur, and. Worf announces that the power problems are so bad that they're coming up on his security console. So security teams are dispatched to Deck 10 to see what's going on with the power, Adam. It's feeling a little booby-trappy at this point, yeah? Yeah. Lights are flickering. Panels are flashing. And, like, it's interesting, but it's also such a facile thing to get it into Worf's under Worf's jurisdiction. Like, uh, yeah, this is power problem that is security. You know, just like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Asking you to make a little leap there. But they go down there, and Worf is, like, trying to get into the holodeck, and the computer keeps spitting back at him. You can't go into this holodeck. All the the security's been overridden. And then the door just magically opens, and Worf walks in, and there's his brother, Nikolai Ruzhenko. I have something to show you. And uh, he, like causes a panel to go transparent and reveals that he has saved an entire village of Boralans by beaming them up to the holodeck and making them believe that they are in the same cave that they were in the entire time. At this point in the episode, I was thinking, God, this would have made a great movie. Go back and put a face on what's happening here. Make the council see the Baku. It's too easy to turn a blind eye to the suffering of a people you don't know. If you took this premise and then added a guy with really, really stretchy skin like those people in Brazil, yeah, this would be a great movie. <laughs> you toss in a scene where Beverly and Troy are talking about how firm their boobs are doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, a, that's pure profit right there. <laughs> you could take that to the bank. Yeah, and... The carriage that Nikolai has throughout isn't just here, but I mean, it's it's everywhere in the episode. He is a man who's totally has total conviction in his choices to the degree that he doesn't even really see what's wrong with the picture. Worf is like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) All of these guys are supposed to be dead. And he's like, no, Nikolai's like, no, I saved them. They're they're living in the holodeck. And the best part, they don't even know they're living there because I beamed them up in their sleep. Why do you think this show is so obsessed with caves? I think when you have one great cave set... You just use it. You just gotta flog the shit out of it. I feel like they're, they're like, such a... Dis- it's like... I don't know. Like, they, it's the souffle humor of this show. It's like... Yeah. There's always, like, the boss coming over and, like, don't don't let the souffle fall or don't burn the souffle in, in old, like, 70s sitcoms. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this show is like, uh, well, we could set this in a cave. <laughs> I think the cave set is just one of those things that is easily refreshed and with different lighting can look different yeah. in a number of ways. Like you're getting such value out of a cave that you just can't possibly hope to get even close with uh, with Alien Bridge Set, for example, which is a play set that this show rarely has or uses. Yeah, too much money. It's not modular in the way that a cave is. Yeah. Someone well, needs to come up with modular science fiction bridge. <laughs> Make a killing on that. That would be a that would be a great business opportunity. Yeah. 
Worf walks his brother right to Picard's ready room uh, for another ass chewing. And uh, he's like, no, no, no. Like, you don't have to chew my ass. I've got this all worked out, Picard. They don't even know that they're in a holodeck right now. I think we can find a new planet, an M-class world that can be their new home. And we'll say like, hey, we're going to walk to this new place that isn't fucked up and full of storms. And we'll just change the terrain in the holodeck as they walk until it's a perfect match for the planet that we find. We beam them down and leave them to their own devices. Right. Picard asks a pretty interesting question here, Adam. What if it doesn't work? (laughs) I feel like... A billion managers have asked a billion subordinates that same question about a billion different ideas, you know? Like, yeah. That is so stock question. <laughs> it's it's very stock, but I was also kind of struck by it because I feel like, man, like I don't know if I've ever heard Picard ask that particular question. Yeah, I completely agree. It really stuck out. You never hear him be pessimistic. I feel like he places so much confidence in the people that work for him but yeah. he does not trust Paul Sorvino one lick and so he has a real different disposition when he's talking to him Picard's not eating his sauce <laughs> <laughs> on the turbo lift on the way over Worf basically tells Nikolai that he's dead to him like this decision is fucked up you know, we've never liked each other from the start. We fight all the time. And this is really like the last straw. You, this is like a dishonorable act. Yeah. And You're making me look really bad in front of my boss. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, like, this is over, man. And we're breaking up. Sad. Yeah. I put it's the sad plan that this in brother motion, we've though, never right? heard of is going to yeah. be out of Worf's life now. <laughs> yeah. So there's a sidecar to the the quote unquote solution to the problem, right? They're gonna they're gonna walk these guys inside the holodeck to a suitable planet type scene. What they need to do is find this planet. And the problem that they're running into while they do this search is that the holodeck program is breaking down and it's and it's doing a bunch of grid flashing. It's it's looking fake in some areas that could be problematic for the Baralans. They've come up with some sort of convenient fictions for explaining these things. Like Worf has been nominated by his brother as a seer who has some kind of supernatural ability to protect them from the storms and understand the strange things they are seeing, like breakdowns in the holodeck. It is the sign of LaForge. And I guess like something about getting hit by the bangers that the planet laid on them has destabilized the holodeck and it's kind of they have like a ticking clock on how long they're going to be able to continue simulating what they're trying to simulate for these people rikers in the next holodeck over just banging away furiously at like a cube like a like a single <laughs> like a, a single black yeah <laughs> and he's like i didn't know i was into this until now any part of the storm <laughs> <laughs> any pixel in the storm I was really struck by the <coughs> level of fictionalizing they're willing to do with Worf's character. Like when Paul Servino says, like, this is my brother. He's a seer. He has magic powers. Worf is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's me. I've got the magic powers. I see stuff. They were so hesitant with the Mentakens to, like, I, I wondered if because the Mentakens had achieved a secular, rational worldview they had like a lot more respect for them as primitives. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Because they keep saying that the uh, the Baralans are like super spiritual and and you know they obviously have some kind of supernaturalism in their in their worldview, but they're also like you know trying to keep detailed historical records. Like there's a guy with a bunch of folded up wood that he says is the is the 17 generation record of their village. Yeah, he's got he's recorded the entire history of his people on blinds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they definitely like went down to the Home Depot and were like, mm, we're just going to need like some louvers and <laughs> a couple of small cans of black paint. That'll be enough to make this uh, history, this chronicle of the of the village. No, what's great is they can just cut them at the hardware store. It's no problem. 
Many science fiction shows would make an ancient tome that contains 17 generations of history look very old. But what this episode presupposes is maybe it can look brand new? (laughs) I thought Picard's whole reason for saying yes to this mission idea was to maybe score another tapestry from these people. (laughs) Like, uh... Sort of like a new retiree has found something that they're into, that they're into collecting. He's like, you know, I really like tapestries, and that been talking one needs a buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's looking a little lonely there, draped against the back of my chair. I need one for Beverly's chair when she comes over for breakfast. <laughs> Random question, Ben. Yeah. Did Patrick Stewart just look hammered by rim lights in this episode? Like, in a way that was... Very noticeable in just about every scene. Yeah, he was he was a little harshly lit. I was I would say the camera department in general on this episode seemed really weak. Like there's a couple of times when they're outside and they just like have no control over how bright the background is relative to the other mm. characters. It's really weird. Like there's like really over overexposed shots in this episode. Yeah. That they've like, you know, they've color corrected back to okay, but clearly like the the whites clipped out and they don't have as much detail in there as, as you want. You don't think that was an intentional move to make it look, you know, alien planet can sometimes look blown out, you know? Is that the idea or no? To me, it felt more like incompetence than choice. Mm. That's fair. I am the cutest of all. Will assist us. I am the you are so they start a walking. You want to Chesterfield? Ben. And along the way, Worf gets to meet, you know, a bunch of the uh, the people in this ragtag crew of walkers. Yeah. One of them is this old man who is clearly, like, trying to hook him up with his daughter to marry. <laughs> oh, she is a beautiful girl. She has not been promised to anyone. I thought that was a really funny scene. This guy's like, look, man, I'm a super old guy. I don't know if I'm going to survive leaving this cave, let alone walking miles and miles with these people. You just got to promise me one thing. If I fall on the walk, you got to marry my daughter. And Worf, <laughs> Worf Demure is like, I don't think you're going to die. And then that's it. <laughs> like, oh, man, I think that old guy's got to be super sad about, like, Getting it up for asking the question of Worf the Seer or whatever. Yeah, he 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 like uh, you know walked across the dance floor at the middle school yeah. dance to ask the first girl <laughs> to dance and uh, just uh, totally got shut down. That's gotta hurt. <laughs> oh, I know that feel, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Another big name actor in this episode, Penny Johnson Gerald. Oh, she played uh, President Palmer's wife in Twenty Four. She's got a, and she's in like Larry Sanders show and shit. Oh, that's right. She's the one with the uh, the sort of double cones hair. Yeah, and she's uh, Paul Sorvino's wife. Yeah, yeah. In this episode, yeah, she's fabulous. A little underused in this episode. Yeah, there's a lot of hand holding and stuff between Nikolai and her, which suggests a deep relationship, which mm-hmm. also suggests maybe the real reason that Nikolai is saving these people. Right. Got to save wifey. Why do you think they didn't go in that direction? That seems a very compelling idea. Like, Nikolai's in love. Nikolai's got a bun in the oven. Yeah. Got to save that wife and kid makes a ton of sense to me. Which is such a primal instinct that would be very easy to see why you choose that over prime directive. It's just as... It's just as charged up as Nikolai's the bad boy of... Cultural <laughs> studies or whatever. Like, like, I think that's got way more teeth than what we've got here, and it would only take a couple of tweaks to do it that way. It would. Well, uh, Penny Johnson Gerald's sci-fi career is not over with this episode, Adam. She is going to be in the uh, Orville television nice. program coming up. She's the doctor. Good get. Yeah. She's really great because in Larry Sanders... She plays really quick and sharp and, like, I don't know, nice right. and angry. Like, she plays the whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, she can be a great villain and a great, like, 
and a great uh, protag. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think she's got a lot of range, way more range than she's got in this episode, certainly. Yeah. Well, maybe, I mean, I, I guess this is like early in her career, so. Yeah. She hadn't, uh, she hadn't landed a role where she could show off what she could do yet, perhaps. The guy that keeps the Chronicle gets in a bit of trouble, Adam. He, uh, before they're leaving the cave, he's like, yo, Worf, I must have dropped the other, like, really, really big object back in the cave and not noticed, so I'm going to run back for it. And uh, Worf, Worf allows this, which is a pretty thin premise for getting him out of the holodeck, but he runs back in the cave and discovers the arch, like, jutting out of a rock, and he, like, reaches out and touches it, and the door to the holodeck appears, and... Before long, he is, like, wandering into 10 forward with his jaw on the floor. This is a really fun scene. Yeah. And the the actor who plays this plays it really straight, like, terrifyingly straight. Yeah. He is basically shaking throughout as he walks through the corridors. Yeah, and it's so good because it's like, we've seen a primitive on the ship before, but they've always been given context and made to feel at ease. And he is a total stranger in a strange land, and he walks into a, a he walks into a ten forward that is bustling with action. It's clearly like happy hour on on ten forward, and <laughs> yeah. and there's just like a perfect amount of activity and people who are not expecting a caveman to walk in. <laughs> You know, right? And their reaction is like they're Starfleet, so they're all like, "Hey, let's help this guy," but they also don't really know what the fuck is going on and so like Riker and Troy have to intervene and Troy uh, has a great scene of like bringing this guy off the brink I know things must look very strange to you your world frightens and confuses me no one's going to hurt you sometimes when I get a message on my fax machine I wonder did little demons get inside and type it I don't know you know the one thing that I thought about during his walk through the ship is how different he must smell from everyone else like (laughs) he has got to fucking reek right he's a prehistoric cave person yeah who knows how that adds up hygiene wise yeah like oof he's (laughs) he's Pig penning his way to 10 forward. <laughs> I thought Troy's character here was really compelling. Like the way she sort of approached a spooked animal, mm-hmm. tried to build some sort of trust by touching him. Like, but that wall never goes down. This kid is scared and remains scared. Yeah. She, she basically brings him back from psychotic break, but yeah. he's, he's, not he's never he never feels comfortable while he is aware of what is really going on. I thought this actor was was really strong. Fucking wharf though, dude, and these doors. At first he can't get into the holodeck because it locks him out, and then he <laughs> leaves the holodeck door open after he goes in for this guy to just wander out of. Yeah. Give me a break, wharf. <laughs> Another one for the case files of Security Chief Worf, not that great at security. (laughs) I thought it would have been really interesting to see Chronicle Guy and Nikolai have a confrontation. Because Chronicle Guy knows Nikolai. Right. And, like, I don't think it would have been that hard for them to write Nikolai off the holodeck for a bit to talk to this guy and, like, explain his reasoning and, like, make a deal with him. Yeah. Or or you know try and fail to make a deal with him. I think I think that that is the like super interesting scene that this episode forgot to have in it. Yeah, what we get instead is Picard sort of presenting a couple of options to him. One of them being keeping the secret and going back to his people to which the kid is like I'm not comfortable with the idea of keeping a secret, but also if I tell these people where I've been, they're going to think I'm a crazy person. That's no way to live either. Yeah. And then Picard's like, well, I mean, your other option is you could stick around here. I mean, this place is pretty cool. <laughs> that check, made me Check think, out all those pomegranates on that glass table. I mean, don't worry about that glass table. That's not going to be a problem. I promise. <laughs> 
we we go through so many of them. <laughs> How natural is it for any culture at any point in its history to sort of fantasize about the future? Because to me, for this kid not to show any excitement at all about the idea of being in the future or whatever the Enterprise represents to him. Right. Like, that kind of surprised me that he was 100% anti the future, 100% terrified of what it represented, where... He keeps he keeps yelling, make Burrell too great again. <laughs> There's never a, a glimmer of of an idea that he would remain and be happy there. Not even a bit of curiosity about his place in the universe. Well, and it's especially interesting because in the Mentakan episode, they immediately round the Enterprise up to heaven and yeah. Picard up to God. Right. And this guy never goes there, like, despite coming from a much more spiritually engaged people. He doesn't see the benefit of a, of like, Dis, you know, like, obviously it would never be an easy choice because you're, like, leaving behind everybody you know and love and the, like, entire reality that you grew up in. But it doesn't seem like presented with those two choices. I I can't imagine making the decision he makes. The ultimate decision? Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same way. I mean... So the kid is like, yeah, I guess I'll stick around or whatever. Like of all these, of all the, of all three choices, this is the least bad. Picard seems satisfied with this. They have a little like chat with the doctor and Six Bay about can we roll back the tape on this kid's head now that he's seen Ten Forward, yeah. and she's like, their neurology is so different, I wouldn't know where to point the little <laughs> laser beam. She's like, just take a look at that nose thing. There's <laughs> no getting around that. <laughs> My clip show device is incompatible with their nose loaf. <laughs> the rest of the Borellans are like still doing their big hike to the promised land. And they're like in camp one night and Worf and his bro are having a showdown as the situation with the holodeck gets worse and worse. Because, you know, Worf is... Worf's position is basically that Paul Servino's, like, his M.O. from back when he was a child was shoot from the hip, do whatever the fuck he wants, let everybody else clean up the mess. As usual, you are only thinking of yourself. And as usual, you are here to point out the error of my ways. And Orr feels like this is the is the exact same situation here and that Paul Servino should admit that he's being a big-time asshole and, uh, and that, like, he doesn't ever do the right thing. And Paul Servino's like, well, you only ever do the right thing, Worf. Sick burn. <laughs> what if it doesn't work? <laughs> <laughs> they do that thing where they get in karate fight stance, but they don't actually hit each other. Yeah, they, they're like about to when the holodeck really just starts to break down. And they're like, okay, this is it. The storms are getting really bad. Only the seer can undo the storms. So everybody go hide in your caves. But everyone must take shelter in the tents. And they're like, the tents won't protect him. This is an electrical storm, you boob. That's not going to help. <laughs> Cut to a guy, like, putting together the carbon fiber rods, like, for a tent and just, like, not figuring it out. Like, there's no way I'm going to get this in time. Like, his tent is just a piece of shit. Have you ever been in a lightning storm, Adam? No, I don't think so. I mean, I've been in a... I've been in a in a heavy duty Midwest thunderstorm, but I don't think I've been in what qualifies as a lightning storm. I was in I did like an outward bound type of thing in high school and we were up ab- above the tree line somewhere in like Yosemite or something and uh there was a like a 2-hour electrical storm and what they had us do was get our foam mats out and like stand on them in like a fetal position like so so like like crouched over like basically presenting the smallest target we possibly could with foam in between us and the ground and we just had to hold that position for two hours spread out so like we couldn't be near each other either 
because we and were you like still lost like two classmates right yeah it was really rough <laughs> <laughs> i still have night terrors about it <laughs> i just remember it being like this should be exciting and awesome and like a total adventure and it's the most boring shit i've ever experienced because uh. i'm just like in an uncomfortable position for two hours without anybody to talk to or anything to do. That's a lot of crotch staring time. (laughs) Yeah, so sure as shit, everyone falls for this. Everyone zips themselves into their tents. And uh, Worf and Nikolai stand off to the side and go, Jordy, beam them down. And so they're beamed, tents and all, down to their new planet. Where there is no storm at the time. It might be the most objects beamed at once that we've ever seen. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's, like, it's like the entire camp disappears. It's just pretty fun. Yeah. I'm glad they didn't up the long ladderize these people. Yeah. You know, like, there's not a lot of barnyard animals. There's not any, like, folksy pan flute playing. <laughs> like, it's just balaclavas and... and Nose ridges <laughs> and wooden shutters. <laughs> so this is we sort of presume that this is a happy ending, right? Like they're on their new planet, they're gonna be home. But guess what happened to the kid who chose to stay on the Enterprise, Ben? Seppuku. Yeah. This was truly shocking to me. He must have wandered into Worf's quarters and found that knife and poison set. See, I thought he was just allergic to pomegranates. <laughs> what a shit way to go. You decide to remain in the future, you eat a fruit that you don't understand, and that's it. It's like a Greek tragedy. Yeah. Yeah, so they bury him with the piece of their people's history, like, crossed in his arms as they zip him into the bag. Like... That's a priceless piece of their their people's heritage that I would have thought they could just like beam down not far outside the camp to be found. I couldn't fucking figure this out because like also Paul Sorvino gives Worf one of these things before he goes. Yeah. And it's like, well, is this like the most valuable thing in your culture or isn't it? <laughs> oh, man. This is also the scene where it's disclosed that Worf is going to be an uncle, which is great because he's great with kids, right? Like, <laughs> like, who wouldn't want Worf to be your uncle? How does how does Worf plan a visit to his brother and sister in law when when they live doesn't. in a in a primitive culture? They do that thing where they're like, "We've been estranged for ten years. This sure buries the hatchet. Still not going to talk to you ever again." Like. <laughs> The animus is gone, but the actual ability to, you know, cross the barrier, that does not appear. They don't have that option. Yeah. Dude, I feel really bad for these Borellans. <laughs> There's like 11 of them. How are the fu- how are they going to like There's going to be so much inbreeding when they try and repopulate the species. Worf sort of has to fuck that dude's daughter, right? <laughs> oh, that baby is going to be a big surprise. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with this loaf? Congratulations. It's a, oh my God. <laughs> there is no possible way to circumcise this child. <laughs> We tried to circumcise him and he broke the Moyle's arm. <laughs> I got to ask you an important question here, Ben. At the very end of the episode, Worf goes in to hug his brother. And I don't know if you noticed this, and you might want to cue it up on the episode. Worf goes right. I have never in my entire life gone right on a hug. I've only ever gone left. You go left because on a I, hug. Because I think that's what everyone does. Everyone goes left on a hug. You mean like head, your head is to the left of their head. Yes. Like from my perspective, their head is to the right of my head. My right ear to their right ear, basically. That's how I hug. That is, that is a internationally respected format for hugging. And Worf goes right, and it freaked me out. 
<laughs> if someone went right on me, I I don't know what I would do about that. I have a theory and a wisecrack about this. The theory is that it is camera position because yeah. they didn't want to flip the one. Like they've established this as the as like both the side of the camp that they're going to be on. Yeah. The entire time and also the side that Paul Sorvino is going to be on. Like Paul Sorvino is always on the left side of the frame. So yeah, when they yeah. go in for the hug, it it flips Paul Sorvino over to the right side of the frame. Good thinking. Yeah. But the wisecrack is that going frame by frame, it's pretty clear that this came as a big surprise to Sorvino because their faces definitely bump. (laughs) (laughs) I love, like, you could see it in your mind, right? Like, the director going, all right, and then you guys hug, and then we'll flip the shot, and then we'll shoot it from the reverse. And then they go in to hug, and he's like, actually, you got to hug the other way. (laughs) Like, you know they hug the way people normally hug at first, and they had to be corrected. Yeah, I've never really thought about it. I guess it's just instinct. Or maybe yeah. I'm terrible at hugging. No, I think I think that's the thing is like everyone does it a way that they don't even bother thinking about until they see it. Have we differently. ever hugged Adam? I'm positive that we have. We must have. And I'm positive that I go left. Yeah. Because I would have remembered and if, I if we'd bumped I'm positive faces. I would have called attention to it if <laughs> if there was an attempt to go right. Yeah. Fair enough. Did you like this episode, Ben? I did. I mean, I think that uh, we've taken the piss out of this episode more than we do most episodes that I like. But um, I like Paul Sorvino. I like episodes where they violate the Prime Directive. Paul Sorvino has to be among the top three or four guest stars on this show, right? Yeah. He's a heavy at the time. Like, he is He is, and special guest appearing appearance by Paul Sorvino level quality as an actor (laughs) yeah as many extra words as you can use to qualify his presence here yeah yeah i like the episode too it is deeply flawed in a number of ways but i think the flaws make it enjoyable in a weird way yeah and paul sorvino paul sorvino's character is riveting and his portrayal of him is riveting his costuming is terrible among (laughs) the worst costuming i think are those blue drapes yeah, he's bad both in the blue drapes and in the Mentakan shit. Yeah. Or yeah. Alan shit, whatever. Well, one of the best looks we have is a P1 message, Ben. You want to go check those? Let's check them. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Ben, our first priority one message is from the doctor. It is for Matt James. Message goes like this. Oh my God. This is definitely the best message we've ever received. I'm sorry, so sorry, that we've been saying lieutenant instead of lieutenant all this time. English listeners are not only the best, but I also recognize that if you need a grammar hero to help you, I will be there for you. I'm a doctor, (laughs) not a fundamentally flawed human being. (laughs) What the fuck? Did this person mean to write Lieutenant? I don't know, maybe. I'm just reading it off of the page, Ben. Yeah, I'm baffled by what we just heard. Have we been mispronouncing something? I don't know. I mean, well, I assume uh, that we're mispronouncing most things. <laughs> we're not smart I'm, men. I'm positive I mispronounced Matt James. <laughs> well, uh, Doctor, if, if we've botched this one, write back in and tell us how we can correct it, but... Uh, We've been saying lieutenant instead of lieutenant, as is written in your message. (laughs) Who's the mistake maker now, the doctor? I am most definitely a fundamentally flawed human being, so I ask (laughs) your forgiveness. (laughs) Adam, our next priority one message uh, is from hashtag rascals, and it's for Plavim. I want Plavim to go fuck himself. No, 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 no. That End is the of entirety of the message. <laughs> no one pays more per letter than Raz and Plavim. <laughs> well done, rascals. You, you've done it again. <laughs> there was like a charter of the rascals that had like NATO-like language in it. That if yeah. Plavim attacked one rascal, he's attacked all rascals. 
This is a unionized group of rascals, number 417. How and, like, their logo it, is a, just a guy doing the jerk-off motion. I'm just, I can't even imagine how they got organized. Like, where are they talking to each other? <laughs> there's some real bat, there's some back-channel rascals conversations happening that we'll, know, we'll never know anything about. We, we only see the symptom, not the root problem. Ugh. Well, we're going to meet the root problem at the Milwaukee show, Ben. Yeah, that probably will have already happened by now. Uh, RSVP Raz and Plavim. <laughs> you think we're going to kill them? I think they might kill each other at our show. There seems to be a lot of animosity. That's true. Well, if you'd like to uh, declare your animosity for somebody or, uh, you know, wish somebody a happy birthday or make a cryptic correction you can go to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron where a personal message is 100 bucks and a commercial message is 200 bucks and those are great ways to help the show boy do I love a microdose gummy from Lumi Labs I'm, uh, I'm running low so I'm going to head over to microdose.com pretty soon and put in another order Microdosing is a technique I use to steer my mentals in a preferred direction several times a week. And uh, I just love it because you can really predict what is going to happen and to what degree it is going to happen. Because these are very low dose cannabis gummies that uh, give you an entry level dose that help you feel just the right amount of good. And they've been super loyal as sponsors to Greatest Trek and Greatest Gen, so I hope you will give them a try. Get 30% off your first order, plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code is SCARVES for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code SCARVES. You might have heard us talk about Squarespace before, and you're thinking, what do I need a website for? I already have a bunch of profiles across the different social medias. But isn't it time you had a place online that wasn't owned by a social media company? How about you take control of your online identity with a website of your own? For that, there's Squarespace. With Squarespace, you can buy a URL and build a customized website with your name, and not a giant social media company's name, with your name attached and a bunch of numbers at the end. With Squarespace, you can have a place on the internet personalized to your aesthetic that lets you tell people about who you are instead of an algorithm. And the best part is, you don't have to be an experienced designer or a web page creator to make something great because Squarespace is always there for you with their award-winning 24 by 7 customer support. Don't settle for being another company's product. Be your own product with a website that's all you with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com. The code is SCARVES. Think it. Dream it. Make it with Squarespace. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. 
Hey Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Drunk Shimoda! I did. I was originally going to give it to Worf because we uh, were talking about the fact that he like walks off with their chronicle, and uh, <laughs> and then I was like I was like scrubbing around in the episode as we were discussing it, and I happened to scrub past the scene in Ten Forward when the chronicler guy stumbles in there, uh-huh. and I am going to give my drunk Shimoda to the hair department on this episode because there are a lot of extras in 10 forward and there are two women with totally bonkers bananas haircuts in the the backgrounds of this uh one is at 2805 actually basically every every female character you see in this entire sequence has completely insane hair aside from marina certis like when he's out in the hall there's two women with crazy hair there's (laughs) There's at least a couple of women with totally insane hair in in Ten Forward when he stumbles in. They are just all over these shots. It's it's fucking ridiculous. There's one that has like Marge Simpson level pile up of hair on the top of her head. I would say that every second between 28 minutes and 28 minutes and five seconds has some <laughs> remarkable hair in it. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> like someone went crazy with a curling iron. Yeah. Oh boy, those wet curls. Yeah. Yee. It's like wet curl and then like spike-shaped pony. It's fucking insane. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh there's like some Cthulhu hair in this scene. <laughs> did you have a drunk Shimoda, Adam? Yeah, I did. I can't stop thinking about the old man trying to uh to marry off his daughter. <laughs> and the thought that occurred to me when he gets rebuked by Worf is like I'll show you, man. I'm just going to kill myself. I thought for sure he was going to fall off of a cliff off screen. Like, that would be his way to ensure that his daughter would be married to Worf. We know that these people are prone to suicide. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. Everything about him was like, he was so unique. Like, he had one scene, basically. And that was it. (laughs) That's such a great, like, if you're a bit actor guy. Yeah. He did a ton with it. And the and the proposition I thought was hilarious. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give the nod to him. There are people who are probably having more fun in this episode, but he really stood out to me. Yeah. What do we have coming up on the next episode, Ben? The next episode is season seven, episode fourteen, Sub Rosa. Shortly after her grandmother's death, Beverly falls under the spell of a ghost lover who has been in her family for generations. Do you remember this episode, Adam? Ben, the most memorable thing about this episode is its reputation. Its reputation is so bad that, like, it almost supersedes anything specific about it. <laughs> I mean, and it's hard to get past its reputation. Like, I I mean, I could tell you what it was about, but it wouldn't be much different than the episode capsule you just read. Yeah. The, but uh, I haven't the, seen it in a very long time. The season seven veto debacle... It really launched a thousand tweets about Sub Rosa. Yeah. Yeah. And how most people thought we were foolish for not vetoing this episode. And then <laughs> an almost equal faction maintains that bad episodes make good pods. So maybe that'll be the case here. Perhaps, Adam. Well, that'll be the next one we watch. Well, one thing is for sure is that bad episodes make good viewers, Ben. And many of those viewers gather in a couple of different places online, like Twitter, using the hashtag GreatestGen. I'm on there as at Cup for Time. Ben is there as at Benjamin R, A-H-R. We're also on Facebook and Reddit. we got to thank Adam Ragusia, who makes a bunch of custom music for the show, and Dark Materia, who made the theme song, and uh, the great folks at MaximumFun.org, who provide tons of support for us and uh, most of all the folks that go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and support our show financially. You know, like I was talking at the beginning of the show about uh, being able to do a few little upgrades to my recording scenario here and you know, like I think that that's that's basically what that what that money is for is like 
how how do we make this show better for the people listening and like it's it's like a swimmer you know you're just shaving off pubes at this point <laughs> i did not expect you to go there <laughs> so thank so thanks to everybody who does that and uh if uh, if you'd like to it's never it's never a bad time yeah i mean we're bringing this show in its current form to a close and if it's been something that uh that you've received a lot of joy out of i think there's a case to be made that there's a value to that and if it has provided you with that kind of value i think we'd really appreciate your support by going to maximumfund.org slash donate well, Adam, with that, we will be back at you next time with another great episode of Star Trek The Next Generation and an episode of The Greatest Generation that is ripping that bodice. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.